Welcome to Shabbat Shalom. This is your host, Sam Frankart, and this is episode 19. Today we're looking at the fifth and sixth seals. We finished up last podcast with the four horsemen that were released after the first four seals were opened. Let's read what happens when the fifth and sixth seals are opened. Today we'll be reading Revelation 6, verses 9 through 17. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned red, blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? When I read this, it makes me think immediately of a scene from Ballads of the Revelation, which is a film that was produced by FAI, um, Frontier Alliance International. I talked about it a while ago on here. It might have actually been my first podcast episode. It's an incredible film, and it's free to watch on the FAI app, but the scene that came to mind for me is called Fellowship of the Fifth Seal. It's such an intense and poignant scene. It visually represents what's happening in verses 9 through 11. I've included a link to the scene on YouTube in the show notes. I also included a link to the film if you're interested in checking that out. So, verse 9. After the four horses had ridden off, the lamb broke the fifth seal. It reveals an altar in heaven, under which are the souls of those who have been martyred for faithfully proclaiming the word of God. The picture reminds me of Leviticus 4, verse 7, which says, And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. They'd been killed for standing up for Jesus. The altar represents the altar of sacrifice in the temple, where animals would be sacrificed to atone for sin. But instead of animals' blood at the base of the altar, John saw the souls of the martyrs who had died preaching the gospel. And we read in verse 10 that they cry out with a loud voice for vengeance. We don't usually think of Christians crying out for vengeance. I remember when I was reading this a while ago, I was thinking, this doesn't sound right. Why are they calling on the Lord to judge people and avenge them? Aren't we supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? What I know for sure about God is that he's good all the time, always faithful, always loving. So when God's people are persecuted, he will set it right. It isn't wrong for God's people to ask him to do what he promised to do. In this way, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vengeance in Genesis 4.10, and so did the blood of the unavenged murderers in 
or the murders, not the murderers, <laughs> that would not work out. But yeah, the blood of the unavenged murders in the land of Israel, Numbers 35, 33. There's, there's this cry in our souls for justice, for justice in death and justice in life. I've recently been seeing my cousin post a lot about the evil of human trafficking. The statistics she's posting are wild. An unbelievable number of children every year, even every day, are taken and forced into the sex trade. More and more cases are being brought to the light, and we're just at the tip of the iceberg. When I hear about evils like this, my soul burns for justice. We want to find the people who are to blame for this evil, and we want them to be punished. And the reason we have such a strong pull to justice is because God does too. He created us in his image, and we share in this common trait of wanting things to be set right. The Christianese word for it is righteousness. We want to see the righteousness of God in these situations. And it's from this burning righteousness that I imagine these martyred souls are crying out. They're saying, how long until you avenge the blood of the righteous? And in verse 11, they're told to wait just a little while longer. How long must they wait until the full number are slain as they were slain? They must wait until all God's appointed martyrs are killed. And this too is a difficult concept for me. The Lord is omniscient, which is Christianese for all-knowing. There's nothing he doesn't know and nothing he can't do, which is why this is challenging. He knows that so many people will be killed for their faith in him. Why doesn't he do something? This is a common question. When we're facing difficulties, financial problems, marital problems, problems at work or at school, when it's been over a year since we've been affected by COVID and we're full of fatigue, when the numbers of people struggling with anxiety and depression are skyrocketing, there's injustice, inequality, and we're telling God, make it right. We can often turn to God, out of anger or sincerity, or both, and ask him, why don't you do something? Well, like the followers of Jesus in the days of the Roman Empire, we want him to come and fix our day-to-day struggles. Jesus' disciples wanted him to overthrow the Romans so the Jews wouldn't have to deal with their oppressive power. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans, and he hasn't taken away the pandemic. He hasn't fixed broken relationships. He hasn't done things that we think he should do. And we have these questions. Let me invite you to step back and see what he has done. Instead of fixing the temporary problem of the Romans, Jesus fixed the eternal problem of God's relationship with man. Instead of fixing that problem we thought was going to be the end of us all those years ago, we can look back now and see how it made us stronger. Yeah, it sucked. Yeah, it hurt. No, we wouldn't want to go through it again. But because we walked through difficult seasons, we're able to empathize with others. We're able to look ahead, knowing that if something like that were to ever happen again to us or to those we love, we know how to battle against it with hope. It would be easier to have a quick fix. But how much deeper is our capacity to love because of a storm we went through? How much wider our wisdom because we were able to persevere. 
When the souls cry out from under the altar for vengeance, they address God as the sovereign Lord. And that's what he is, sovereign, which when you actually look in the Greek, it's, it's translated and means holy and true. And Lord, which means master or absolute ruler. So they're crying out knowing that he is holy and true and that he's the absolute ruler. These martyrs, they stand out because they were faithful. Jesus had predicted in Matthew 10:22 that his followers would be severely persecuted by those who hated what he stood for. In times of terrible persecutions, however, they, they could have hope, knowing that salvation was theirs. Standing firm to the end is not a way to be saved, but the evidence that a person is really committed to Jesus. Persistence is not a means to earn salvation. It's the byproduct of truly a devoted life. Times of trial serve to sift true Christians from false or fair-weather Christians. When you're pressured to give up or turn your back on Jesus, don't do it. Continue to stand for him. Let's read verses 12 through 14. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth, as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. With the opening of the sixth seal, we see five different events taking place. Some have taken these to be literal, and others call these five events figurative or word pictures. What's described in these three verses would have been common to many of John's readers. They stood for the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. Isaiah wrote about this. So did Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Nahum, and Sephaniah. It's all over in the Old Testament. Jesus even spoke about these exact events. So what do they mean? Well, since it has yet to happen, we can only guess, but there's a common consensus on some of these events. First, the earthquake. An earthquake in scripture is a picture of God's presence. We see that in Exodus 19:18, when the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. There was smoke, fire, and the whole mountain trembled. When he visits, the earth shakes. And then there's the sun becoming black like a sackcloth of goat hair. This stood out to me when I read it today. Like, we know what the color black is. Why does John explain the color black like a sackcloth of goat hair? It seemed strange to me this morning, so I looked into it. In Eastern culture, sackcloth was worn in times of mourning and sadness. We see multiple accounts of this in the Old Testament. In the book of Esther, when the Jews found out that the king had signed off on genocide, we read in chapter 4, verse 3, that many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They were lamenting their fate. And then Daniel, in the Old Testament, also put on sackcloth when he prayed for Israel. So I wonder if John describes the sun going black, like sackcloth made of goat hair, to emphasize the lament that surrounded the blackness of the sun. And then there's also the event of the moon being turned blood red. And I'm not going to get into that. There are a ton of conspiracy theories about blood moons and what it means for the moon to turn red. And we're not going to get into that. Next, we read about the stars falling to earth. And this could refer to a meteor shower. And we could read more about that in Joel 2, 
verses 30 and 31, as well as Mark 13, 21 through 25. There's lots of guessing as to what this all means, but all that we know is that this is what John saw after the sixth seal was opened. It's best to regard these pictures as real, but poetic. John didn't use technical or precise and scientific language. He simply described what he saw. The fifth event John describes is the sky rolling up like a scroll. I had talked in a previous podcast about how these events could be interpreted as chronological, cyclical, and progressively intensified. And if you look at this final event after the opening of the sixth seal as chronological, this would be the end of the first round of judgments. If you look at it as cyclical, this could be seen as the time when Jesus opens heaven and returns to earth. All right, let's look at the last three verses in this chapter. Verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Okay, so we see the kings of the earth and mighty military leaders, the rich and the famous, as well as commoners, their slave and free. And all of these people are equally brought low by God's wrath. It's the wrath of the Lamb, which seems like a paradox. Lambs are gentle animals, but this lamb is Jesus, and this lamb was bringing great wrath upon a world that had refused his sacrifice, mocked his name, and persecuted his people. The people recognized that it was the end of the world, and they were terrified. The generals, emperors, and kings who previously showed no fear of God and arrogantly flaunted their unbelief will find that they are wrong, and in that day, they will have to face God's judgment. They would prefer that an avalanche fall on them rather than having to face God. But the reality is that even death can't help them to escape their judgment. The sixth seal concludes with a valid question. Who is able to stand? Only the believer can stand before this great judgment. The one who is justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1-2 say, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 1 Corinthians 15.1 says, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. And finally, 1 Peter 5.12, testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. The believer can stand in the face of this great wrath of God because Jesus already bore the wrath the believer deserved. Well, that's all we have for today. We'll pick up next Friday with Revelation 7. Check out the show notes for a link to a commentary from David Guzik on Revelation 6, a link to a song from the Ballads of the Revelation, as well as other commentaries. You can find me on Instagram at Sam Brancart. Until then, Shabbat Shalom. Maranatha.